Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Okay, so last week was significant to me. And so just stay with me as we go through this. If you want to know where we're going, we're going to go to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. We'll get there in about 10 minutes. Um, or so. Last week was significant because it represented something. I was reflecting on our story as a church, and it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. Our story as a church doesn't make sense. Eight years we've been independent as a church. We've been planted as nine years. I remember when my wife and I moved here, and it was her and I and one other friend from Costa Mesa that said, we're going to do this thing. And all my friends that were coming didn't come, and I was thinking, okay, there's three of us, and we're going to do this thing called the church plant. And, and I look back at last week announcing to the church that there's, we, we brought in over one, we brought in like nearly $1.2 million in one year. That's crazy to me, financially, because it, it showed something. And then the furniture tabernacle, and then people were passing the bucket, filling it with cash, and needs were being met all last week. And I was hearing these amazing stories, and I thought, this is just crazy. It doesn't make sense. Stories like this don't happen. They don't happen. It's remarkable. And I realized as I was looking, because we had a youth group that went this week to camp, and I heard amazing stories from youth. I was talking to Jordan, one of our youth, Jordan right there. He was just telling me about how awesome it was. And I was talking uh, to another person about what his, their favorite moment was, and they were talking about this candlelight moment where they were marching up the hill in the night, and they had candles, and they lit up the cross, and they, they put candles around the cross. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the 20-plus youth that we have every Sunday. When we hired a youth pastor before we had any youth, because we said, you're going to be a youth pastor to the city, Amy. That's what her commission was. And that's what's happened. Alpha's taken off. We have a church plant in Chihuahua, Mexico. I got a text message from our worship pastor, our former worship pastor, Pete. He says, hi, by the way. He lives in New Hampshire. And he said, seriously, could you pray and send us a garden church planter in New Hampshire? There's 3% Christian in New Hampshire. We need a garden church. I said, I'll tell the church and we'll start praying, but we, you get some people and we'll send a, a church planner, someone who's called. It just doesn't happen. The way we care for St. Luke's Safe Families, Women's Connect, house churches, stories like this don't happen. We started our church in a nightclub. At night, as soon as we were done, the club opened up. There was, you had to pay for parking if we went too long. <laughs> The kids' ministry was in the cigar lounge. We had air purifiers. I would never take my one-year-old to crawl on the floor of Cohiba nightclub. <laughs> the stuff we were picking up before service, the things that we were taking off the wall were terrible. What were we thinking? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. From the beginning, we had no idea. We were not naive. We were ignorant. But we were passionate. We were committed to the Spirit, committed to figuring out how to be a Spirit-led church, committed to the Scriptures, committed to the city of Long Beach. However she looked, wherever she was, we were going there. We were young, we were naive, we were insecure, and we were fragile. And what happened last week was a significant shift. What happened last week was a, was a chapter break in our story where we, I recognize we've moved from fragility to stability. 
not because of anything we've done, not because of human effort or endeavor, but because in moments throughout our history as a church, we've committed to seeking God's face. We've just put ourselves in those moments to turn to God when it mattered. The heart of our church has never been a program, a model, a book other than the Bible, a technique. If you just look at what we've done with small groups, we started with life groups, then we moved to missional communities, then we moved to community groups, then we moved to garden groups, and then we moved to house churches. That's just, we're, we're, we're not committed to a model. We're committed to following the Spirit any cost. In other words, at the garden, we've always said we're going to give everything to following Jesus, put everything on the table, no matter what the cost, even if people leave. I remember in 2016, right after the election, tons of people left our church because we were too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives. This is what happened. I was getting, I was in constant dialogue with people that were exiting our church because of different positions they held on the opposite spectrum. And all I was trying to do was represent Jesus in the middle. All we were trying to do was make the main thing the main thing and invite as many people to the table as possible. And that's the thing is that we have this beautiful church, not because of anything we've done, but because of who God is. And I guess this is a chapter break or I just recognize it's moved. It's a chapter break in our community to just recognize where we are as a church. We've moved from fragility to stability. Look at this room right now. It's completely full. We have another service. It doesn't make sense. All the kids that are in the kids' ministry and the youth, it doesn't, it doesn't happen in urban settings. This shouldn't happen. If you knew our story and how many mistakes we made, you would think there's no way unless there's a God. So there's this moment where I just recognize, I just want to pause and say as a community, this is a chapter break. It's an end of one era and it's the beginning of something and we're in this in-between time. So I'm speaking prophetically right now that this is a moment where we're moving to something else. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I've never been sure of the journey, but we're committed to following the Spirit collectively as a church. I've never been more excited about our eldership, our staff, our house church pastors, our leaders. It is vibrant and alive and full of character and the spirit. So what is here has the potential for some things that are amazing. So with that, I just want to say our communities in this new season, but also I just look around the world at our culture. And I think something's happening in our culture. Would you agree? (laughs) Like something has changed as a pastor. Maybe I'm just now becoming aware of what's changed or I've been feeling it for a couple of years, but we are ministering in a progressive context in a polarized nation. And it feels like in this moment, the culture has some crazy contradictions. And I just wanted to not make any judgments, but make some observations about the crazy contradictions that we find ourselves in. And what I'm going to do is make some observations. And then I'm going to tell a story of Mark chapter 9 and tell it through the lens of what's happening in our church, and then I'm going to invite you to pray. Sound good? Can we do that? Are you guys with me? Did I already lose you? So here are some crazy uh, cultural or crazy contradictions of our culture. Some of these are from my friend John Tyson, who leads a church in New York City. So here, here are just some observations. We, uh, of what's happening at the same time in our culture, we have the rise of gay rights, and at the same time, the rise of the alt-right. 
the first African-American president in our history, followed by the election of Donald Trump. The decline of the church in America and the rise of the nuns, not associated to any religion at all. That's what it means, the nuns, not nuns. With, right. <laughs> we also have the rise of the mega church and celebrity pastor. A pastor is told recently to step down because in his early 20s as a youth pastor, he made a move on a 17-year-old girl, which is heartbreaking and tragic. But at the same time in Hollywood, Call Me By Your Name is celebrating a relationship with an underage teenage boy and a man in his 20s. At the same time, the Me Too movement is rushing through our world, bringing all sorts of amazing change. At the same time, Fifty Shades of Grey Picturing the sexual domination of a woman is the fastest and largest selling book amongst women of all time. We have the rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech. Every tech company is working to provide greater connection and belonging and the growing ailment of modern society at the moment is loneliness. We live in an era of connectivity and hopeful technology, advancing, bringing advances in healthcare, breakthrough in life expectancy and expansion, while happiness in teenagers has decreased for the first time in 20 years, according to Psychology Today, and depression and teenage suicide has increased by 30% between the ages of 12 and 17. We live in the normalization and obsession with technology and a desire to get rid of it from our lives at the same time. Do you see the tension? Do you feel the tension? I feel it. I know. Does anyone have a clue what's going on? No, I don't think so. As a society, as a nation, as a city, we have become a globalized system. Everything is connected to everything else. The things that are happening in a country like Syria have implication for Seal Beach. Because it's all connected. Families have come here, migrated because of the oppression of one government system. And it's impacting families who are adopting refugees into our country. Isn't that interesting? We're all connected. It's moving at at an accelerated pace. All to say, how does Jesus fit into all of this? How does Jesus fit into this growing tension, this polarization, this contradiction of culture and society? And how do we as a church engage? What are we to do? That's what I want to I invite you into today. So if you have a Bible, go to Mark. Let's check this out. Mark chapter 9. Those are some interesting observations, are they not? Here we go. We're going to jump in. Mark 9, verse 14. So right before this passage, Jesus is on the mountaintop with his disciples, a couple of disciples, three of them. And the transfiguration happens. Jesus reveals his glory to three disciples. His glory is revealed to these disciples and his glory is connected to obedience to God. And this story of the transfiguration that happens right before the story we're going to read is connected to the story of Moses on the mountain, bringing, receiving the Torah the law of God. 
And this story, it's, it's just this, this parallel story that, that you're, the author is intentionally writing the story of transfiguration connected to, to Moses receiving the law, the Torah. And what happens in transfiguration is Jesus is seen as the new Torah, the walking, living, breathing law. The Torah of God is on display. And now the story comes and Jesus comes down the mountain. When Moses comes down the mountain, what was going on? Do you guys remember? The worshiping the golden calf. They're practicing idolatry. They're totally rejecting God. And now the story is Jesus. This is tied. So have that story in the back of your mind as we read this story together. Um, Mark chapter 9. It says, when, the, when, they came to the other dis, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So in other words, they come down the mountain, their cell phone clicks on and real life starts happening. All the messages come back, the text, help us, Jesus, get us out of here, something's wrong. So real life is happening after the mountaintop experience. Can anyone relate to this? Can anyone relate to experiencing God on Sunday and the very next thing is as you're driving in the car with your kids is you're fighting with your spouse? Anyone want to say amen? I saw the hand go up real quick, Eric. I saw your hand go up real quick. It's what happens, real life. So here Jesus comes down the mountain, real life is happening. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, so the crowd, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So this is the opposite of Moses. So the crowd is coming to see him. It's something else is going on. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, my boy who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So this, he tells them what's going on, and Jesus' response is not, you dirty demon, get out. You terrible, despicable demon. He says, look at what he does. He says, you unbelieving generation. He associates something that's going on to the individual, to the community that's going around. Just keep that in your mind for a moment. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy, how long has he been like this? From childhood. He answered, it, often throw, uh, it has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The word pity is have compassion. If you can, Jesus' response, almost insulted, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, um, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running towards the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and impure spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. And Jesus had gone indoors with his disciples privately. And they asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Or other manuscripts say prayer and fasting. So 
I want to tell a story, connect it to what I see going on in culture in our community, if you will. So just stay with me for a second. Uh, what happens is Jesus comes down from the mountain. The crowds are overwhelmed. And Mark uses the crowd as a literary tool for um, following the book of Mark. It's either, you're either a disciple or one of the crowd. And what you see with the crowd is they're regularly amazed. They're overwhelmed and they're celebrating Jesus. And then at the very end, they're, they're the same crowd that's crucifying him. They shout, crucify, crucify. So the, the, the juxtaposition of, Mo, uh, of Mark is, all right, will you be one of the crowd or will you be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? So that's one thing that's going on. And then Jesus is confronted by this, this thing and the father says, hey, this is what's going on. I brought my son and your disciples can't cast out the demon. And then he begins, and then he immediately associates what's happening in this little boy to something that's happening on a much lar- larger scale. And I think the crowd is important because this is what I wanted to share, that there's a public expression of following Jesus today that lacks private devotion. Just let that sit with you for a moment because this is what's going on with the crowd. In contrast to the story of Moses, here the public acknowledges Jesus. They reject God and Moses is God. In this story, they run to him overwhelmed and amazed. They recognize him. The crowd is overwhelmed by him. But Jesus sees what's going on underneath the surface. And he wants you to know something else is going on. What's being proclaimed publicly by the crowds doesn't align with what's going on underneath. I think this is what's going on with society as a whole. That there is public lies and private truth. That's happening on a much larger scale. There's a book about this. It's called Public Lies and Private Truth. It's the thing when someone, <laughs> it's the thing I stole it. So it's like when your friend, he talks about your friend remodeled the kitchen and they, they bring you over and they tell you all their plans and you walk in and they tell you all that you've done and they're like, hey, what do you think? And you say, gosh, I love it. But deep inside, you're, you're, the truth is you don't love it. This is what our society and culture has done, I think on a different level in regards to Christianity. I think what we're seeing today in our culture is um, people are actually publicly angry and outraged. But what's happening underneath something else is going on and I can't put my finger on it. And I think we'll, we'll talk about things publicly, but our lives don't reflect the public description or, or, or arguments we have. Does that make sense? Do you see this? And I think I want to speak directly to the church. We live in a moment where there's something called cultural Christianity happening, where cultural Christianity professes to be Christian as a form of ideal or idea or moral alignment, but lacks a private commitment to the things that Jesus is about. So we have this cultural Christianity that is reflected in the media, but it doesn't reflect Jesus and his commands and his heart for the world. So the church is represented by this cultural Christianity as a hypocrite, as judgmental, as anti-everything. And what I think's happened in this cultural Christianity is we've made Jesus into our own image where he looks like us, he acts like us, he votes like 
us. His house is perfect, an idealized, perfect living space. His morality is a little bit better than the guy next door. And I think what's happened is we have this image of Jesus that we, we reflect and broadcast that doesn't actually reflect the true image and nature of Christ. And I want to speak as part of the problem. But I love what Anne Lamott said. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson took a copy of the King James uh, Version of the Bible with a pair of scissors and glue. He tried to improve the Gospels for his culture and context. He cut out things that disturbed him. The life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, he kept those and he took out the supernatural, the miracles, the resurrection of Jesus and anything that made Jesus look divine. Thomas Jefferson was disturbed by the picture of his own day of Jesus and he cut out what only made sense to his culture. This became known as the Jefferson Bible. And I think we've done the same thing today. We've made the Bible into our own personal promise book. We've cut out the pieces that are offensive. You see, I think we've disregarded the teachings of Jesus when it comes to the poor, the immigrant, the outcast, the immoral, the homeless, the needy. We disregard the 59 one another's of what it looks like to follow God as a community so that we could have make Jesus a private affair. Cultural Christianity mocks and carries opposition towards true discipleship to Jesus Christ. Christianity today does not reflect Christ and his desire into the world. For some reason, it seems like Christians in our nation are more concerned about illegal immigration, the right to bear arms and abortion, than they are about loving our neighbors, turning the other cheek, and caring for the orphan and the widow. We're more concerned about praying in public spaces than ha- and having a particular justice system that aligns with our moral code than actually praying privately and embodying that morality and character of Jesus. I think this is part of the problem. Christians are sleeping through this life. We're too busy. We're too stressed out. We're too anxious to do anything about our job, our marriages, and our families, let alone the rest of the world around us. And we're distracted by the burdens of ordinary existence that we forgot the Great Commission. We've forgotten what it means to live as witness. And Jesus says to the crowd, as this boy who is the most vulnerable in its society, you unbelieving generation. You unbelieving church. He's not calling them atheists. He's saying you say one thing publicly, but you resist it privately. You're unwilling to give God everything. And so the community, the culture resists God at all. The church is the problem. So Jesus comes down from the mountain and what he encounters as he comes down is a system. So he encounters a system when he comes down from the mountain. A system can be a nation, a city, a community, a church, a school. It can be a family. We have family systems theory. And when we, we see that there is always a direct connection between the most vulnerable and systems in all society and institutions. So we see a direct connection between the boy and what's happening in this boy and the greater community in the first century Israel at that time. Are you guys with me? Are you guys following my train of thought? 
because this is where I think it gets, a, I just want you to stay with. The system is influencing the most vulnerable. So this is why when we have systems like porn industry, billions of dollars, our number one export as a nation is pornography and weapons. Do you know that? So we do have exports. And what we have to recognize is that when you have an industry like porn, porn industry that has billions of dollars, the people that are suffering are the most vulnerable and innocent. So now, you know, 50% of porn is connected to human trafficking. Children and women who are vulnerable and taken advantage of. I just heard story of Long Beach, organization that we work with that helps our youth that are coming out of sex trafficking in our city get plugged into youth ministries. 15 and 13 year olds. Massive institutions impacting the most vulnerable people. And this is where we need to be compassionate. We need to, we need to become people that recognize the systems we can change by policy and voting and all of that. But our job as Christians is to display the compassion of Christ to the most vulnerable. Are you with me? Okay. So we need to align our hearts with those who are impacted by the system. And Bill, yesterday talked about this in our parenting course. He said, how oftentimes in family systems, it's the weakest member of a family that will absorb and embody the fain, fa- pain excuse me, of the entire family. And, with, uh, and that person tends to act out in pain and brokenness. So Johnny, 13-year-old's acting out, setting his locker on fire, fixed Johnny. Well, the real problem is this family system, the brokenness, the alcoholic father, the, the emotionally detached mother, the, the star, you know, the sister that's the all-star that gets all the attention. So do you see how f- this one person acting out is part of a larger system? The same is true for our city and for our nation and for the world. People in our city are affected by systemic oppression. And what's happening in this moment, in this, this time, is Jesus is, is recognizing this child, that this demon possession is connected to something larger. And some scholars say that what's happening is that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon for lots of reasons. There's, it's debated. One, because this demonic force is more powerful than other demonic forces they've come across. And the other thing is that they've been operating in the authority that Christ has been given them, but with this idea of prayer and fasting or prayer, it's, a, it's, it's connected to being, uh, allowing God to bring the, the, the um, deliverance that's necessary by, by that person, the disciples, remaining in communion with God. That God's the ultimate source for deliverance. And if you continue to operate outside of that communion, that loving communion with God, if you just try to show up and do the stuff, that's why Acts 19, the, st- the sons of Sceva, remember? They start casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demon's like, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? And they get beat up by the demon-possessed guys. Because they're trying to do the things of Jesus without living in loving communion with the Father. Are you with me? We'll come back to that. But Jesus recognizes in this moment that something that's happening that's trying to destroy this child's life is connected to the unbelief that's happening in the community around them. Garden Church, can we kick the AC? It might be me getting hot. See if the AC is on. Let's get... So what Jesus sees is that the system needs to be changed. Garden Church, we live in a space where we've been overtaken by anxiety and fear. Right? depression and despair, pain, oppression, isolation, loneliness, and addiction. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed what's been happening even on Sundays, but there's been individual disruptions of people who have been 
hurting and suffering. They are a byproduct of the systemic injustice that's in our city. And for some reason, I believe Jesus is saying to us, um, this can only be released through fasting and prayer. In other words, church, you're not doing your job. You've been given all power and authority, but you are not living in communion with the Father. The system needs to be changed. But notice how this occurs. Just pay attention real quick. Notice how the system changes and how Jesus changes the system. The community in the first century that was there participating needed healing in this moment. And it's the father of the son that recognizes what's happening to this unbelief generation. He says to them, he says to them, um, let me find it, in verse 24, um, he says, if you can do anything, would you help us? And he says, if anything is possible for those who believe. So we recognize unbelief is the problem. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. How? So, so the father recognizes that something needs to shift in the community. And rather than blaming everyone else, he takes responsibility. I can change my life. I have the courage to be responsible and stop blaming and stop being a victim to culture and say, Jesus, I, I, I have unbelief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus meets him in that courageous vulnerability, in that place of weakness, and performs a miracle. You see this? Do you see how courageous it takes humility and vulnerability? It takes the Father to stop denying his problem and have the courage to confront fronted help my unbelief and things begin to change in the system community begins to shift edwin freeman in his book a failure of nerve i highly recommend this book this is totally wrecking me he's uh he's a rabbi and a social theorist and he says it takes one person to change a system or an environment his argument was to stop looking at the system and trying to affect the entire, entire whole from, from the military government to families. He has this theory that says actually what it takes is one person to become a non-anxious presence, a change agent to that system. And as they begin to change themselves and self-differentiate and stop reacting to the system, the rest of the system will be infected like antibodies. So your body gets the flu and your whole body begins to ache from head to toe. And how it gets healed is your body produces antibodies that that attack the infection. And then it begins to go through your entire body until you're healed. This is essentially the theory behind Edwin Friedman. He says, he argues that a a change, to change the system, one doesn't need to focus on the entire system. One doesn't need to focus on all of Long Beach. One just needs to focus on one person who's willing to become a non-anxious presence, who stops blaming the system for all of its problems, takes the responsibility and becomes an agent of change. And that person can change families, cities, nations, and governments. Isn't that interesting? I think this is the moment in our church's story. Um, I think this is that moment in our church's story where we become change agents for our city for our families and the institutions that we're a product. So stay with me just for a few more minutes as I, I kind of try to wrap this up. I was thinking about 
this theory and this story of the demon-possessed child and how it began to, to move around and heal. And I, I think of the moment in our own church's story where God began to do a real work of change. God began to do a real work of change and move in a new way. And I, I would trace it to a moment when God began to confront me privately in a personal way as a leader of the church. See, there was a moment a few years ago where God confronted me and he, he said, stop checking out. Stop just getting by. Fast from alcohol. Stop consuming compulsively. Stop neglecting your quiet time. Stop working yourself into exhaustion. Stop being absent in your home. Stop allowing your marriage to be a product of your past pain and brokenness of what you've inherited. Stop making excuses for the consistent problems. Stop blaming everyone else Stop, put those things down. Don't say one thing and do another. And God began to challenge me personally and wake me up to a lifestyle of purity and holiness. And things began to change in my life. I can't deny this. That in 2016, as this began to be confronted in my life, my journey as a man completely began to shift towards Jesus. Where I could say confidently that I've, I'm more passionate about Jesus this morning in, on my knees in worship, my boy comes to the door in our outside prayer house. We have a little prayer den that my wife made for Father's Day. She made me a prayer closet. How cool is that? And, and I'm just on my knees and God, and it's not something that I had to fight for. It's something that I know is a grace of God, but it started when God confronted the private issues in my life. How many of us feel stuck like we can't change our circumstances. We're tired of, of dealing with the same thing over and over, the petty arguments, the, the, the overindulgence into alcohol and food. How many of us are longing for something to be different in our lives and we feel stuck? Does anyone relate to this? I believe this is the moment where God wants to wake us up to recognize what's coming, what's about to happen needs the church to wake up. It needs men and women to stop coasting and start contending for their faith. And this is the call I have for our church. I believe God is asking some of you to no longer tolerate your situation. To no longer tolerate your marriage falling apart. He wants you to contend for it. To no longer tolerate the absentee relationship you have with your kids. He wants you to contend for it. To lo no longer tolerate this type of public confession of Jesus on Sunday with no private devotion on Monday. He's waking us up. He's calling us out. And Jesus wants to change the world. And how will he change the world? Through you being utterly transformed into his likeness. This isn't a do more for Jesus message. This is a wake up and live out of who you already are. I believe God is inviting our church into becoming the kinds of people that will see a movement happen. But not because we expected a movement, but because we lived moment by moment in his presence. I believe the movement will come when we choose to live in the moment with Jesus. And Jesus says to the child, come out of him and never enter him again. It's our job to close the door. So those things don't come back into my life. It takes one person to change a system. That person becomes an agent of change. Change is possible. Cultural change is possible. We're part of this global system that we can begin to infect with Christ's holiness if we believe we are the change agents. Now, Friedman was not a Christian. 
take his principle of change and transformation of systems, add the Holy Spirit with the power of the resurrection and community of the king and release that into the world? And do you see what's possible? This is what I think, I I just don't want to settle. I don't want to be a stable church that has a million dollar budget unless we're willing to put everything back on the table and say, where to next? Let's, let's get our lives together so that the, the vulnerable people here have the freedom to walk in and get deliverance the moment they come to Franklin Middle School. Kids, are, I was thinking about this this last winter. How many of us, and myself included, wouldn't want to bring our kids to kids' ministry fear of getting our kids sick? What if we change the narrative? This is a healing center where sick kids get healed the moment they walk in. Do you have faith for this? Because I do. That's what I want to see. Where, oh, you're sick today? Well, Johnny's going to pray for you. He's five. He's got the faith of Jesus Christ to heal colds. I don't know what you're thinking, but this is what I'm thinking. This is what I want. So, Mark says the reason the disciples couldn't cast out the demons is because they needed to live in communion with God. God, um, they couldn't just rely on past experiences, past quiet times. There are different levels of demonic forces and there are, there are some forces that are going to impact individuals because of a communal energy or communal demonic force. And the community of the church needs to wake up and believe the things that Jesus has said and live in regular communion with the Father. The force in that boy was connected to a larger community, a power that was bigger than them themselves. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones said in a series that he did on revival, he said, what is going to develop in the West is a kind of demon or demonic force that won't come out without prayer and fasting. Brothers and sisters, I want you to pray and fast. This is the urgent need of the moment for our church is to become people who pray every day and regularly and fast regularly. Give up food, give up social media, give up a meal throughout the week to take on the intensity that's needed to be in communion with God. It's when I started giving up alcohol, giving up compulsive consumerism. I I started this journey and I I saw God's power and intimacy through this process. And my wife was, we were talking through this sermon and she's like, Darren, if it wasn't for you doing all those things, we wouldn't have got to the ultimate thing that had a grip on our life. I'm like, what was the ultimate thing that had a grip on our life? She said, security and comfort by owning a home. Because God called us a year ago to give up our home. And I was thinking, you're right. There was this baby step journey of continuing to give up. And now we're living in this place where we're completely free. Zero debt in our life. We can go anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're staying here for the rest of our life. But (laughs) we are willing to listen to God and obey no matter what. We put everything on the table regularly. We need to become a church that puts everything on the table, that doesn't live in security and comfort of modern age, but lives in security and comfort in Jesus. But most importantly, we have to recognize that there is a demonic force in Western society that will not come out without prayer and fasting. We must rely on the power of God because the West, the United States, the city of Long Beach, Orange County, LA County will not come to know Jesus and be healed through conferences or purpose-driven books or stage lights and fog machines, but through transformed people living as a witness wherever they are. So the message I have today, for those of you that feel overwhelmed, that are anxious, that feel stuck, you're longing for real change, can I speak prophetically to you? You don't need another book on prayer. 
You don't need another sermon on prayer. Pray. Grab a chair, get a journal, pray to God. Brothers and sisters that feel stuck in their relationships, stuck in their parenting process, stuck in life, you want breakthrough. Can I invite you to do something so revolutionary, so countercultural, fast? Just try it. Try and keep going for it. Become a kind of person that recognizes that you can change the whole world if you start taking responsibility for the change that's needed in you. Amen? All right. Thanks for letting me preach. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.